Welcome to Verse by Verse with Clinton DeFrance. How could we be a part of God's work to get the gospel to the world? Find out in today's study of Acts chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 28. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south, along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. In our last study, we concluded the account of the kingdom of God expanding beyond Judea and, in fact, beyond the Jews as a people into the regions and cities of Samaria. The account ended with the apostles returning to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans, Acts 8 and verse 25. Thus, the prophetic command of Jesus in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 is happening exactly according to his authoritative decree. The truth concerning Jesus, the call of repentance, the promise of remission of sins, and the reign of God through his Son would begin in Jerusalem and spread throughout all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So we resume our study in verse 26. Luke begins, Now, as the apostles return to Jerusalem, we will turn our focus to Philip. So the New American Standard Version better captures the idea with the conjunction of contrast. But the apostles have done their work in Samaria, but the work of God in the increase of his kingdom continues. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip. As we study through the book of Acts, and a book like this, we need to perform a cautionary check on some invalid assumptions that we might make if we're not familiar with the big picture of Bible history. There are certain phenomena that seem fairly common in Acts. We read about them in almost every chapter. Sometimes maybe it feels like we read about them on every page. But in the grand scheme of things, they are actually quite uncommon and extraordinary. In particular, we need to recognize the extraordinary nature of miracles, direct revelations from God in the form of dreams or audible voices, and angelic apparitions. Since we see an angel in this passage, we'll spend a little bit of time on that particular issue. In the 39 books of the Old Testament, covering an historical period of at least 4,000 years, angels appear only 22 times and to only 25 different people. Consider it this way. Abraham entertained his heavenly visitors around 1900 B.C., and Zechariah the prophet saw his angels around 520 B.C. 22 angelic apparitions over that roughly 1,320-year period averages out to one visitation every 60 years. Between the Old and New Testaments, there were 400 years 
without a single biblically confirmed angelic visitation. In the New Testament, only 35 people see angels, and these on only 18 separate occasions, most of them for the extraordinary announcements of the birth and resurrection of Christ. So angelic apparitions are very rare, even in the Bible. When they happen, something major is going on in the work of God. It's not surprising that we should encounter a few of them, six to be precise, in the book of Acts, because this was a time when something major was happening. The last days are beginning. The reign of God through Christ is being established and is beginning its unstoppable conquest of the world. I don't want to distract us from the point of the text here, but I do want to emphasize that the appearance of this angel to Philip marks that this is a very special event, and we should be alerted by it to pay close attention to what happens next. Angels are literally messengers of God, and the message of this angel was simple, but it also rung with a tone of urgency. Arise and go. Immediately, we are surprised to see God calling Philip away from an area where he was having such success in the gospel, and even more so with the confirmation of the Holy Spirit and the apostles having just been disseminated among the believers. But the surprise only intensifies when we see where Philip was told to arise and go. Arise and go toward the south, along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza, to which Luke adds this startling comment, this is desert. Literally, this is a deserted or uninhabited place. We should mention here that desert in this context does not mean that it was like the Negev or the Sahara. We find what the Bible calls desert places full of green grass, Mark 6 and verse 39. And in this desert, we're going to find a place of much water, explicitly mentioned. Many years ago, Dr. T.S. Barclay took a tour of the Holy Land, and he described this region as one of the most fertile he had ever seen. It was, at that point in time, a major thoroughfare between Jerusalem and the thriving trade city of Gaza for travelers who would be passing through on their way to or from Egypt. But it was not a place where cities or villages were built, and therefore, it was not the sort of place one would think about evangelizing in hopes to establish a congregation. Why then would Philip be sent to a place like this? It seemed altogether unreasonable and contrary to what Philip's own wisdom could have ever inspired him to do. However, we learned in our special study on the pattern for conversion in Acts that conversion always begins on the initiative of God. Of course, this is true because the basis of conversion, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, was purposed by God before the foundation of the world, and because leading up to the first proclamation of the gospel were centuries of divine work providentially manipulating the very course and flow of history to make the salvation of humanity possible. But the Bible presents the God of heaven as one who does great things and small things, as it were, as one who is both transcendent and imminent. To use the language of the great American poet Stuart Hamblin, he is big enough to rule this mighty universe, yet small enough to live 
within my heart. He is grand and glorious enough to move the planets in their orbits and close enough to us to mark the death of each sparrow and to know the number of hairs on each head. The Bible teaches that God is aware of every human being and of every detail of our lives, and he is always at work to present himself to those who are groping and searching for him so that we might find him, says Acts 17 and verse 27. Perhaps you will respond to that, but uh, didn't you just say a moment ago that angelic appearances and voices from heaven and miraculous phenomena were rare, even long ago? And didn't you imply that we should not expect to experience those things today? Yes, but I do not mean by that that God's work in the world is only occasional and infrequent. It is simply a matter of what God's work looks like. We're going to see very plainly that God can work without externally visible or audible phenomena and accomplish the same kind of wonderful things he has sometimes chosen to accomplish through those means. God is always present with his world, always aware, and always at work to get his gospel where it needs to be. On this occasion, he knew something that Philip did not know. But Philip knew that God is greater and wiser than us. God was greater and wiser than him. And thus, in verse 27, we find no protest or argument, simply that he arose and went. I hope that if my life were recorded and my encounters with God's wisdom were documented, that it might read this way. Apart from angelic visitations, God has given all of us clear instruction in his word about how we should live and what we should do to accomplish his will. When God opens a door, when he makes an opportunity available to us, even if it seems by our wisdom to be something we would never have chosen ourselves, what shall we do with it? If we are living in simple, trusting submission to God's word, the answer will be the same every time. He arose and went. And behold, Luke uses an expression here of attention-grabbing amazement, like a tourist seeing a great sight and wanting to get the attention of his traveling friends. Look, wouldn't you know it? God's wisdom was right. There's somebody right now. And the person Philip saw is described in many particulars, all of which are meaningful and significant. First, he is called a man of Ethiopia. In the modern world, the name Ethiopia tends to invoke visions of hunger, poverty, and government instability. But in the ancient world, Ethiopia had a reputation for wealth, prestige, and power. The kingdom of Ethiopia was governed by the king's mother called the Kandake, or Candace. It was also called the kingdom of Mero, which was located in the area of modern Sudan and was a center of trade in ivory and gold uh, that through that enterprise became extravagantly wealthy. The Ethiopians were black-skinned people. Jeremiah makes reference to that in Jeremiah 13, 23, unlike the fairer-complected Egyptians in North Africa. In fact, the very name Ethiopian means one with burnt skin. However, in the ancient world, this was not an object of derision, but rather one of admiration. 
The modern bigotry based on skin color is completely unknown in the Bible and certainly has no support or basis in Scripture. Men did not consider the Ethiopians under some Hamitic curse, as was foolishly suggested by certain American and European theologians of the 19th century, that is, uh, historically and scripturally absurd. Rather, Ethiopians were held as paradigms of physical beauty and wisdom and military prowess and considered almost mystical by the world around them. Perhaps the most significant fact, however, is that because of its remote location and mysterious culture, Ethiopia was widely regarded in the ancient world as the most distant region on earth. In Homer's Odyssey, he spoke of the far-off Ethiopians. Herodotus called Ethiopia the ends of the earth, and Strabo, the Greek geographer, called the Ethiopians the utmost of mankind. The same sentiment is expressed in the literature of the Jews, for example, in Esther 1 and verse 1 and 8 and verse 9 and Ezekiel 29 and verse 10, where reaching the border of Ethiopia is used poetically to express the utter vastness of a territory. It was as large as it could be. Not only was he an Ethiopian, but Luke further introduces him as a eunuch of great authority under Candace, or Kandake, the queen of the Ethiopians. While it was not always the case that official eunuchs were emasculated, it was generally so, and in this case it's almost certain since he served in the court of a female dignitary. There was a certain degree of shame associated with being a eunuch. Such men were excluded, for example, from full conversion because they could not be circumcised, and from full participation in the worship at the tabernacle and temple, according to Deuteronomy 23 and verse 1. Yet this was a man of great honor and great authority in government from a respected world power. The precise nature and degree of his authority is then specified, who had charge of all her treasury, that is, the treasury of the Kandake of Ethiopia. This is very meaningful as we seek to understand this man. It's a glimpse into his character. While it is possible for a dishonest and unscrupulous man to achieve power and control over money. In fact, these days we might be inclined to think that most people in that sort of position are wicked and corrupt, but I think Luke wants us to view this man differently. The reason that the precise nature of the confidence that Kandake placed in him is named is to highlight that he was not merely a nobleman, but a noble man. And yet the accolades continue. Luke says that he had come to Jerusalem to worship. There was in ancient Ethiopia a pagan religion. The king of the Ethiopians was thought to be the offspring of the Kandake and the sun itself. The mythology and sacrificial system associated with the religion was much the same as other ancient cultures in its brutality and immorality. However, this man has come to Jerusalem to worship, and that means that he is a worshiper of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How did he come to be such? Well, of course, we cannot be certain, because the text does not reveal those details. There are, however, a few strong possibilities that are worthy of mention. 
In the centuries before Christ, Jews migrated to Ethiopia and the surrounding regions and established communities there that worshipped God and taught the Torah. Some of the Jews might have converted or intermarried with the Ethiopian population, as even Moses himself had married an Ethiopian woman, according to Numbers 12 and verse 1. But at some point, there seems to have also been the formation of an altogether new religious group called the Falashars. These people worshipped the one true God, but they did so with their own rituals and traditions, and they even produced their own scriptures in addition to the Jewish writings which they also accepted. They actually claimed to be Jews, but were in no significant respect ethnically related to the Israelites, if at all. It's possible that the eunuch learned about God through these means, but however he acquired his faith, he was evidently very strong and real in his dedication and his spiritual devotion. The journey from Ethiopia to Jerusalem, which we remind the readers and listeners was made by a chariot or wagon, was more than 1,000 miles. Months of time and untold financial expenses were involved in this act of devotion, and all from a man who was not even welcomed into full entrance or participation in the temple when he arrived. So we have before us a man of great religious dedication, a man of nobility and integrity, a man who loves and longs for a full relationship with the true God of heaven and earth. He has come from the farthest fringe of human civilization, but God sees him and knows him, and God intends for his kingdom to extend even to the uttermost parts of the earth. So as this man was returning, behold, God brings a preacher to him. In our next study, we shall consider the rest of the eunuch's case of conversion, but I want to mention a fascinating point that highlights the wonder of God's work in this world. McGarvey notes that Philip had to travel between one and two days to get to the intersection point with the eunuch's chariot, but the eunuch would have been only a few hours into his own journey. So Philip left to meet the eunuch before the eunuch left himself. God is at work in this world to accomplish his will, to accomplish his will in my life and in your life and in the lives of all mankind. And God will succeed. We are so blessed that he allows us to be a part of it. If we will only trust his power and obey his word, we may never be called by an angel. But when we are presented with an opportunity to do what we know is God's command, be like Philip, arise and go and be amazed at God's mighty power and perfect wisdom. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the scriptures together. Verse by Verse is brought to you by the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You can contact us at tulsachurchofchrist at gmail.com or visit tulsachurchofchrist.com. When we walk with the Lord, when we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, in the light of His Word. 
What a glory he sheds on our way, sheds on our way. While we do his good will, while we do his good will, he abides with us still, he abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey, trust and obey, trust and obey, trust and obey. Trust and obey. Trust and obey.